All right, hopefully this works better. Uh, I had to shift platforms and do a whole bunch of stuff. So let's start this again. Now, the people have now made the media obsolete. I'm, I was going to start off with showing you uh, this uh, video that was created by the people for the people, but I thought it would be interesting if we uh, went to a report this morning by The Hill, commenting on what, uh, you know, the New York Times is doing. Now, they didn't mention me, but we all know it was just a targeted hit piece. I mean, what was it that they said? Well, if Waypo and the New York Times don't go after you, then you're not really important. Well, here they are going after us, and I wanted you to see it because we are the news, and this is a problem for the New York Times. Take a listen. Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed, we do. We got some jam-packed panels. Jennifer Holdsworth Carb, Rachel Bovard, Colin Rojero, Marshall Kosloff. We've also got Zed Jelani on talking about the Washington Post's choice of fact-checking. We've got David Sirota on with his latest breaking news piece. But first, I wanted to take a look at um, the New York Times has found yet another platform that they apparently find evil or problematic or whatever. We can throw this up on the screen. This time, they're going after Twitch. So you'll recall they've already, you know, sort of gone after Substack. They've gone after podcasts podcast. writ large, yeah, yeah. just like podcasts. Yes. So now here's the piece. Extremists find a financial lifeline on Twitch. The subhead, QAnon adherents, and other far-right influences are making thousands of dollars broadcasting election and vaccine conspiracy theories on the streaming site. Sounds really bad, Sagar. And then Ooh, you dig wow. into the details of this piece. They identified 20 channels, 20 out of 7 million people who stream on Twitch that they found to it, you know, hype vaccine conspiracies or QAnon or stop the steal mm -hmm. nonsense. Then the premise of the piece is like, oh, this is some big financial lifeline and they're getting rich off of this, et cetera, et cetera. The people, the person. Wait, someone in the chat said we should go to DLive. Actually, DLive has considered me too dangerous to have lemons or anything. So I'm getting rid of them. Uh, they work for another group of persons. Well, you can do the math on that one, but I just wanted to point that out. Person who made the most money that they identified made $25,000. Oh, wow. Everybody else Living was $5,000 that they had made off of Twitch. And so again, you're taking, look, I don't have like, I don't love these people. And I certainly don't like what they're saying. If it's true about, you know, they're pushing right. vaccine propaganda, lies, conspiracy theories, et cetera. Like none of that is a good thing, but they tried to take this handful of channels and totally dismiss an entire platform, which by the way, if your thing is censorship, Twitch has been more aggressive about enforcing terms of service than almost any other platform. They were the first ones mm -hmm. to kick Donald Trump off long before Twitter and the others followed suit. 
So yet another effort by the New York Times to just just basically kill their competition. I mean, that's what this is really about. You can't be on Substack. You can't do a podcast. You can't be on Twitch now, apparently. And so you're stuck with just if you're only if you're in the mainstream news that they say is okay, then maybe you're all right. These people just somehow have nothing better to do. And this is the Clubhouse. That's a whole other one. It's from Clubhouse. (laughs) It's been, remember, signal messaging. That actually is the one that scared the shit out of me. Mm. When they were like, encryption protocols and signal are where misinformation is being pushed now. I'm like, oh, so that people's private messages, which is encrypted, now that is all in the battle space. You Now it's Twitch. Basically, they'll hunt you down if you're saying something they don't like. And like you said, I don't like the people pushing vaccine misinformation or election misinformation or any of this other stuff. I think it's bad. But that doesn't mean that they, I mean, what, $5,000? Come on. Like, these people, it's not like they're making millions and millions. And even if they were, who is it to the times to say who gets to be a millionaire and who doesn't in terms of pushing stuff? If they get to make more money by pushing lies during 2016, like, they mean hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions from their stock price and from the increase of their subscription of what they did in the Trump era. That doesn't mean they don't all sometimes do good journalism, but it's, look, it's like we've said from the beginning, it's guild protectionism. They want to set the rules of the game anywhere there is, Substack, YouTube, signal messaging, etc. They get to decide if it's good or if it's bad. And if there's wrong thing happening on it, then the CEOs of this company better listen or they're going to get a hit piece in the New York Times, which will drop their stock price, drop their valuation, have their board directors get upset. That's how they can cause a problem for you. And meanwhile, like their misinformation, there's never any consequence for that. That doesn't mean that they should be banned or the New York Times taken down from the website or even those reporters fired. I mean, that's usually the way that you get your next sweet gig is by telling whatever their particular brand of conspiracy theorizing is. Look, this is the easiest story in the world to write for these people, too, because Every single platform that exists out there, there are going to be things that are set on it that are a problem. Mm-hmm. Everyone. I mean, you're just, it's never going to happen that you have a platform that is 100% conspiracy theory free. That's 100% accurate info. I mean, that's a fantasy. That's a utopia. So they just seem like they're systematically going through one after another, anything that's remotely a competitor to them, finding something that they don't like, turning it into a big story. And here, like the numbers alone, they're just kind of pathetic. Yeah, even are. they'll say they're they're streaming to hundreds or even thousands of people, like, thousands of people out of a country of three hundred and thirty yes. million, and you're giving them more attention right now in your New York Times mm-hmm. piece than they ever had on no, Twitch. You're so, exactly right. Yeah, a guy who put helped put this in perspective for me was in, his name is Ben Thompson. He writes about the tech industry. I subscribe to his newsletter, and he put it this way, which is that. Part of the thing about the internet is that you're onboarding all of humanity. And guess what? That includes the bad parts. Right. There are some bad parts of humanity. And by focusing on 0.01% of their user base or right. whatever, okay, I mean, you could be like, man, you know, imagine an alien race and they're looking at like murderers and they're like, oh my God, these humans, they're out of control. I mean, you know, not entirely wrong. But like, does that represent all humanity? No. That's completely insane. You should think about the same thing when it comes to platforms. We have billions and billions of people. A certain segment of those billions 
are going to be bad. And all right, does that mean that you curtail the freedom or, you know, whatever of the entire billions just to take care of these people or to brand their platform or whatever specifically based on that? Absolutely not. And And that's how we have to think about these. And here's, there's a real consequence here uh, too. the CEO of YouTube in a recent interview admitted that they suppress, I mean, this is something that independent YouTubers have have known, right? But, but their YouTube liaisons will just lie to them directly. There's no different treatment for independent news. There's no separate algorithm. Everybody's treated the same. It's truly an equal meritocratic total bullshit. And the CEO of YouTube admitted it. Basically, they've decided specifically in news and politics because of pressure from people Mm -hmm. like the New York Times that they're going to funnel you overwhelmingly into the same old crap you get on cable news. It's going to be NBC. It's going to be MSNBC. It's going to be CNN. If you're conservative, it's going to be Fox News. And so if you're an independent creator who's trying to get off the ground right now, very, very, very difficult. People who already have platforms, they've seen their growth drop dramatically. And look, in the post-Trump era, a lot of mainstream media's growth has dropped dramatically as well. But the the switch that they've seen and when they saw it, I mean, it is very clear. Mm -hmm. And again, the YouTube CEO admitted to the fact that they're suppressing these sites. So you've just completely killed the... That's what YouTube is supposed to be all about. It's supposed to be independent creators. It's not supposed to be like corporate media too. But that's literally what they've turned it into now. And again, it's partly because of pressure from pieces like... No, it is directly because of people. We should understand that, which is it probably is better business to allow independent creators to thrive. But you know what's not for business? For Google Corporation or Alphabet Corporation, I should say, having New York Times pieces being like, so-and-so's video gets millions of views. And people are like, what? Millions? It's like, yeah, well, actually, there's a lot. Like, there are people picking their nose on YouTube who have like 100 million views. Right. So, when, like, people who eat pickles, I, that one I still don't really get. Um, who have like a billion views or whatever. Yeah, and it's, actually, like, it's actually really depressing. Like yeah. my son watches these YouTube, yeah. these like kids who are just playing around on right. whatever video game. He loves Roblox personally. Right. And I'm like, oh, cool. This video got 10 yeah. million views. Right, That's which awesome. is like 10 We're working ten, so hard out ten here. Times harder than, ten, 10 times more than my best day um, ever on Rising. I, re- I guess I should become an ASMR guy. That's really <laughs> That's the bottom line yeah. takeaway. Okay, right. so, yeah. all right. So what they said you know, is very true. They are trying to, you know, silence everyone, their competition. And, you know, I know Crystal and Sagar, you know, put it out. Oh, they picked 20 channels. Out of all those 20, I'm actually top 1200 on all of Twitch globally. So there's like a top 5,000 and even though I don't have a big following and I don't have that many subscribers, because like they said, I made 25, which is taxes included on that the whole year. So it's like, you know, in essence, it's 10. And my operating cost just to put everything together is at least eight, nine. So I've made a total of what? A couple thousand dollars. (laughs) So living wage, like you said, whoa. But the thing is, we're growing because truth is growing. And you know, people that sequestered all their efforts into one thing because cash was coming in, did it for that reason. Cash was coming in, you know, even though D live has completely demonetized me, I'll still broadcast there, but I don't do that all the time because I don't want to give them revenue or statistics so that they can sell or get refinanced or stuff like that. Right. Not because they're not funding me. Let's just make that clear. 
like Trovo, total of how many months I've had it, made me like what, um, $800, $800. So, um, I, you know, and I haven't even been able to cash that out yet per se. Right. And they come in coins. This is the way it is. You know, you're not supposed to be doing things because you're making it. It's great to make money on it because you're spending so much time and effort, but they just don't want people to be able to do anything. They want, you know, their voices heard only. So it was very, very targeted. They came just straight to me, um, you know, and that's it. Like the platforms that I use just to broadcast, you know, cost me $500 a month because I have to use somebody else's so that I can broadcast simultaneously to all these platforms, right? But it's okay. I, I decided to do this. I funded myself all these years. I've been doing it myself. It's great if it comes to me, but they were just salty because it's been growing grassroots. And so when they put that article out there, I was showing you what their problem was before he did his article, that it started from zero and has continuous exponential growth, which means I don't use bots. And if you guys notice, I, the only place where I have anybody's emails is from Twitch because you sign up and that's where I can send you guys an email message. My website doesn't collect emails. I don't collect emails. If I'm deplatformed, you're going to have to go looking for me, but I make it easy. I'm everywhere. And for those that use Freenet and Tor and, you know, through the undernet, you guys get to see it too, right? So for those of you <laughs> in other countries that can't access things, because in these socialist nations, they are scared of everything. So uh, shout out to my subscribers on Subscribestar because they're like my lifeline. And I know a lot of people don't have $5 to give. I've been in that position where I'm like asking to be to, in my life. I have been in the position where I'm like, wish I had $5. But whatever you guys do for me, I appreciate you 100%. But I wanted you to see just how effective you are. You're the effective one. I'm simply a vessel. I've just been doing this for a while because you needed to hear your voice. And this is what I wanted to show you. You guys created this. This is so awesome. I can't, for, I can't wait for May Day. Take a listen and a watch. Plum Island, a small island off the eastern tip of Long Island, New York, a former coast artillery post, is now the U.S. bastion against foreign animal diseases. One thing we want people to understand is what we do here is trying to protect the nation's livestock, which protects the food supply and our economy. We do no classified work in Plum Island. All the work that we do, we publish all of our science. Everything is very out in the open. The laboratory was built out here over 60 years ago. We wanted to make sure when they built the lab, if we we're going to have any live virus and it was not on the mainland, it could not be spread. The laboratory was built out here on an island to keep it safe. Hold on. You heard that from the Department of Homeland Security. Because they were experimenting on animal viruses, built it on an island so it can be away from animals. One of the biggest threats to that is a disease like foot and mouth disease that doesn't exist in this country and hasn't been here since 1929. I'm looking at Plum Island because what we do is make sure that foreign animal diseases, diseases that don't exist in livestock in this country are controlled. 
So if you have a disease like foot and mouth disease, which the last outbreak in this country was 1929, what's improvements of 100 years? So bringing that back is going to be very difficult. It's estimated that we had an outbreak of foot and mouth disease in this country. The impact would be over $50 billion just in the first year. It took us $180 billion to get our markets back and to get the economy back and food supply back. And it could be catastrophic depending on how long it took to get under control. After a fight that spanned more than a decade, Plum Island on Suffolk County will not be sold. A federal budget released last week repealed the auction of the island. Back in 2008, Congress created a federal law to mandate the sale to the highest bidder. The local lawmakers and environmentalists fought it and won. They argued to preserve it as a world-renowned research facility, historical site, and conservation area. So we talked about um, this new um, before lab, which as you understand, has pathogens that have no cures and no vaccines and are being developed. Now here it was a very good investigative piece. I, I think I just put part one, there's a part two, where the people of New York are being questioned if they're okay with it becoming from a level three to a level four. Level three means we're dealing only with animal diseases, right? And remember, this is an island near New York. It's like in the middle between Lake Ross and Connecticut, New York, right? Highly d densely populated areas. But they were like, listen, man, I'm fine with the whole animal viruses, right? But when you're going to add people viruses, you can't put it near the population. You got to take it to another island, somewhere far, far away from people and animals. He's like, it's like this lab with the animals. You're not going to stick it in the middle of America with cows. They literally say that. But guess what? Some people have this fascinating idea that they're going to stick an animal bio research lab that also has human pathogens. It's a level four like Wuhan. It's crazy, right? Is that they're going to move it there, but they concealed information. And the reason that they concealed information is because then the people of Kansas would say no. And the question is, did you guys in Kansas actually vote for the and if it has been voted, can you go to your legislators and tell them to take a look again and they need to shut this down? They need to stop right now. They need to shut it down and abandon, uh, abandon ship. Done. I'll tell you, the fact that they, in the COVID-19 omnibus bill that President Trump signed in 2020, snuck in a clause disallowing the sale of Plum Island because to sell the island, someone buys it. And if someone buys it and they find toxic chemicals, three-eyed frogs, because that shows up in New York, right? Or deformed seals or vegetation dead or dies of radiation, then people will know that these facilities are not safe. But it's very important for you to understand there was information about Plum Island where that level three facility was in that they have concealed from the public that, that indicated the dangers and indicated the damage to soil and water. But for some reason, they're calling it an environmental freaking sanctuary. Why? Well, when this deal was made that they were going to make it a level four or move it, right? They were like, okay, we'll move it if we have money for it, right? That was the idea. If we have money for it, we're going to move it. So they're like, I know how we can have money. We're going to sell it. We're going to do a private sale. And 
that money will fund the moving of this facility to another location. Texas was one of them. Atlanta was another. Um, Kansas was another. Which was one was the other one? Was it Missouri? It wasn't Missouri. I don't remember. Oh, it was the Plum Island itself. Sorry. So it was either to stay at Plum Island in the middle of all this population with animal diseases or take it to Atlanta where they already have a level four for human pathogens only, but now they wanted to make it a human and animal pathogens. We need to experiment on how we can create zonic transfer We need to see if pigs will ever affect them. Dr. Ronald Atlas, chair of the committee, evaluating risk at InBath and spoke to reporters when there was a The probability of an infection resulting from a laboratory release of foot and mouth disease from the NBAP in Manhattan, Kansas, approaches 70% over 50 years of operation with a projected economic impact of nine to $50 billion. How awesome was that put together? Because we've got Kansas now freaking out. We've got Kansas freaking out and May Day is up. May Day is up and it's coming. So May Day is the day that uh, the media decides that the people are in control. Now, I wanted to talk today about propaganda. I mean, I wanted to kind of uh, give you a little bit of a heads up of things that interest us first. For example, the guy, you know, the guy that was sitting on Pelosi's desk, (laughs) he's out of jail and he gave an interview. I also wanted to play Rudy's, uh, interview, which is which was very interesting, but you know the guy that sat at Pelosi's desk, he had a lot to say, and I think it's important that we listen to what his experience was like. Well, and that we listen to what he was able to say, right? Because you know he's still under that. Um, how do you how how do we state it? Uh, scope. Here we go. He gave his interview. And we're going to watch this now and listen. Here we go. Cheers from that situation on Capitol Hill on January 6th. That is Richard Barnett with his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk. Now, looks like he might have been having a good time at that time, but ever since he's been in a lot of trouble. He was identified through facial recognition technology and lots of folks knew who he was. He turned himself in to authorities on January 8th And he was just released, I believe, yesterday. He is now secured pretrial release, but he's facing a slew of charges. Here are some of them. Uh, Everything from obstruction of an official proceeding, uh, disorderly and disruptive conduct. It goes on and on and on. Uh, Next slide. uh, You can see this. This is a federal case, and he's facing time in prison, potentially. But Richard Barnett joins us right now. Mr. Barnett, welcome to Newsmax, along with your lawyers, Joseph McBride and Stephen Metcalf. Welcome to you all. And uh, first to you, Mr. Barnett, you've been in prison jail for almost four months. How does it feel to be out? Oh, it's fantastic. I've got to tell you, I'm reunited with my wife. I'm anxious to get home and see my uh, my, my daughter and my, my pets. And uh, it was a tough road to hoe, but uh, I made it through and I'm really excited to be out. Can I get your thoughts on, you've been in custody almost four months. Uh, There's no evidence of you specifically uh, hurting anybody or breaking anything. There are suspected murderers who have secured bail before uh, earlier, sooner than four months. And you've been in custody all this time. Correct. My thoughts. Um, First off, thank you for having me on. Bet. Uh, Yeah. Um, 
it's out there. I threw a hissy fit at one of my court hearings. <laughs> you know, it was tough. Uh, you know, I'm watching these other people go out. Not only did I not get violent, uh, you know, I did what I could to, to help officers at certain points. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it's good to be out now. I don't have a lot to say about it. That will be dealt with. I haven't been to trial yet. But, uh, but, but yeah, I felt like it was unfair. Do you have any regrets? Right. That's not something that we're going to get into right now as far as regrets, especially with, uh, with Richard's state of mind. No regrets. You're not going to say anything at this point about that. I understand you got a legal case. Anything you can, anything you say can and will be used against you. I have that. So I'll ask uh, your lawyer then, uh, and we'll go back to the picture. Some people noticed um, uh, an instrument, a device of some kind on uh, Mr. Barnett's belt. Uh, some say it's a stun gun. I, I hear others say it's a cane. What was it and what was Mr. Barnett's uh, intention uh, with that? So, uh, Greg, once again, good to be on. As discussed in our papers uh, at length, the device was a multi-use tool, a walking stick, stun gun, slash flashlight. Um, it had three purposes. Mr. Barnett uh, brought it for uh, to use primarily as a walking stick. There was a concern, um, admittedly, about uh, Antifa protesters and possible violent acts. He did not see any of those things upon his arrival the day before at the Capitol. And because of that, and because he just needed a walking stick for the next day, he went to the January 6th event with the stun gun portion of the device disabled. We stand by that comment. We have uh, you know, stood by that since the beginning. We will stand by that through the end. The evidence will support uh, our statement. And we hope to bring that out at trial. Now, Mr. Barnett, I saw a picture of you holding up a letter uh, that I think was addressed to Nancy Pelosi. You spoke about that letter on January 6th. The camera tracked you down. And uh, here's what you had to say. How'd you get it? I didn't steal it. I bled on it. They were facing me and I couldn't see. And so I figured, well, I'm in her office. I got blood in her office. I'll put a quarter on her desk, even though she ain't worth it. <laughs> I, I understand you did not open that letter and you turned it in when you turned yourself in on January 8th. What's up with the blood? You mentioned blood from yourself. What, what happened to you? Yeah, you know, this is okay. I, I, want, I want people to know. Uh, uh, when I was at the Capitol, I, I didn't go there to storm the Capitol. Uh, I'd lost, we were walking back from the Washington Monument and from the, uh, the peaceful protest. And I was with a couple of gentlemen that I knew. And we were going back to our cars to go home. And we got separated because of the melee that was going on. Um, I walked to the top of those steps because we had a code that if we got lost, wave the flag and we'll find each other. At that point, uh, I was uh, uh, a crowd rushed me. I was knocked into the building. I fell and was trampled and I cut myself. And we're, we're going to leave that there for obvious reasons, Stephen. And, okay, and fair Greg. enough, fair enough. Gentlemen, we have a few more things to get through, and I, I appreciate that you have both of your attorneys with you. You left a note, um, Richard, uh, for Nancy Pelosi, and we actually have it. I know that this has been submitted and reviewed by the authorities. Uh, hey, Nancy, uh, Big O was here, and I know, Richard, that's your, that's your nickname. And then it's signed, um, or Big O was here. There are two interpretations of the next word. It could be biatch or... B-I-T-C-H. Uh, which is it, and uh, what, what is the significance of that, please? This comment and the interpretation of this 
has been interpreted completely differently than how it should and how our papers laid it out. The government used this as an exhibit and as their first focal point in trying to show that Richard was dangerous. We simply pointed out, as Joseph and I do in our cases, we pointed out that there was a misrepresentation on how that was specifically quoted. And we are going to continue to do that throughout the entire course of this case, no matter how minute that point is. Okay, and they, yeah. they, I understand. The government said, I'm just going to say the word bitch, that he wrote bitch, B-I-T-C-H, and he said he actually wrote biatch, which would be uh, less uh, inflammatory, perhaps a little bit nicer, uh, more slang, not as vulgar. And that's interesting. Some people are laughing at it. I think it's a, uh, a, a valid point. I want to go to you, sir. Uh, Richard, if you can, if I can get your response, I'm sorry if I, I want your response on this and if your lawyers want to jump in. But uh, as you know, Donald Trump issued several pardons to uh, people, many pardons, actually. Did you ask for a pardon and did you feel that you were entitled to a pardon? Okay. First off, I have all the respect in the world for, for President Trump. Um, I think he's a great man. I believe in him. Um, at this point, I. Uh, I don't have any ill will towards him. I did not ask for a pardon. However, I do have questions. So, uh, President Trump, if you get a chance, I'd love to talk to you. Give my attorneys a call. Now, some people, some people who are in your boat, and there are still people in jail right now who haven't been released, who are arrested even before you, who are still in, in custody. Um, do you think Donald Trump, some of them are saying Donald Trump told us to go to the Capitol, that he told us to do this. What do you, are you saying that? Greg, at this time, the, sta the statements have been have been clear and on camera. Donald Trump did say, hey, let's go down to the Capitol. We'll come with you. And no, we are not saying it is not our position that Donald Trump said invade the Capitol or do any harmful things or uh, to the Capitol or the property. So that is not a position that we are going to be setting forth. By the way, I just want to make clear, Mr. Barnett, um, I have a lot of sympathy for you and what you've gone through. I don't think you should have been kept in custody. You may have made some mistakes that day and uh, we'll see what happens. But I think it's ridiculous that you were in custody for as long as you were. And uh, I'm glad to see you're finally out. Um, you're going to go back to Arkansas now. Uh, what's left? Uh, is it true that you're employer terminated you, fired you? Uh, uh, I'm an independent contractor. I did have a contract with them. That contract has been terminated, but I also have another business I'm very passionate about, so I'm doing fine. I'm very excited about getting home and seeing my daughter, my pets. Uh, look, I'm an everyday guy just like the rest of you. You know, there's been a lot said about me here by people who don't even know me making accusations. Uh, but I'm excited to go home. Uh, we'll hopefully continue this conversation later. And Greg, Thank you so much for giving me a chance to be on your program and uh, and talk to you. You bet. You bet, sir. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Take care now, and I'll be right back. So I'm just going to leave that as it is without saying anything. It's kind of like um, <laughs> I actually use this. So fun story. Someone had sent me some chocolates in the mail, and Phoebe really liked those chocolates. And so there was one of those chocolates left. And she was like, mom, where's the chocolate? I'm like, oh, funny story. So I was walking through the kitchen. The box was there. The cat pushed me into the kitchen. And then the chocolate fell in my mouth. That's all I have to say on that one, if you catch my drift. So now let's go and see what uh, Rudy Giuliani had to say after the FBI raid. Don't worry. I know it's Easter for me. It's, it's Holy Friday today. Tomorrow, there's Midnight Mass for the Resurrection. My daughter is en route 
to come here so we can spend Easter together. Monday, I'm going to have a massive show with Millie with me and Gavin. Um, uh, we're going to do a show together on Monday from Millie's studio. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be pretty interessante. Um, but I will get those out. I will get them out for Rudy regardless. They didn't take the laptop, but I'm pretty sure they got everything else. <laughs> That's coming. That's coming. That's coming. So let's take a look at this uh, interview with um, Tucker. It was actually quite fascinating. Donnie just learned that lesson the hard way yesterday when federal agents raided his home and took his files. By our count, Rudy Giuliani is at least the third attorney to have his personal communications with former President Donald Trump seized by the Justice Department. Sense a theme here? Rudy Giuliani joins us to tell us what happened. Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for coming on. Now, if you'd been reading the Twitter feed of the Lincoln Project, the Democratic hacks who got Joe Biden elected, you would have known that federal agents were about to raid your home. They knew before you did, but apparently you weren't. Tell us what happened yesterday. Well, about six o'clock in the morning, there was a big bang, bang, bang on the door. And outside were seven, seven FBI agents with a warrant uh, for uh, electronics. And I looked at the warrant and I said, uh, you know, this is extraordinary because I've offered to give these to the government and talk it over with the government for two years. I don't know why they have to do this. The agents seemed somewhat apologetic, I might say. They were very, very professional and very gentlemanly. The only time they got perturbed is at the end of the surge when they had taken about, I'd say, seven or eight electronic items of mine, which is what they took, and, and two of someone else's. I, I, they weren't taking the three hard drives, which of course are electronic devices. They just mimic the, the computer. I said, well, don't you want these? And they said, what are they? I said, those are Hunter Biden's hard drives. And they said, no, 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 no. I said, are you sure you don't want them? I mean, the, the warrant required them to take it. And they said, no, no. And I, one last time I said, don't you think you should take it to And they said, no. Now, Hunter Biden's hard drives fall within the scope of the subpoena. The subpoena required them to take all electronics, but they decided to leave that behind. And they also, were completely content to rely on my word that these were Hunter Biden's hard drives. I mean, they could have been Donald Trump's. They could have been Vladimir Putin's. They could have been anybody's. But they relied on me, the man who had to be raided in the morning, uh, because I, well, I'm going to destroy the evidence. I've known about this for two years, uh, Tucker. I could have destroyed the evidence years ago. A year, I didn't destroy the evidence because the evidence is exculpatory. It proves that the president and I and all of us are innocent. They're the ones who are committing. It's like it's like projection. They're committing the crimes. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, well, may, may I just interject to say it's I think literally projection. So from what we have read in the press, the Department of Justice wants to know whether you violated FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, in representing foreign nationals, Ukrainians for pay. You didn't register. They're saying that may have been a crime. We know for a fact that Hunter Biden did that. He didn't register under FARA. He represented Ukrainians. He probably made a lot more than you did. He also represented Chinese nationals, lobbying his dad. And he has not been charged with a fair violation. Am I missing something here? Uh, yeah, you're missing uh, you know, equal administration of justice, which is what we don't yeah. have anymore. The reality is the hard drive contains somewhere between a dozen or more violations of Farrah that are spelled out uh, completely, failure to register. Uh, the, the fact is it also spells out, as we now know, a clear violation of the 
gun act. The, 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 the application is a straight out fraud. He says, I'm not an addict. We have a picture of him five days before smoking a crack pipe behind the wheel of a car and then saying under oath that he's not an addict. And it's the left that gets all perturbed about people who are mentally unstable having guns. Well, he was unstable. He's been, a, he, unfortunately and tragically, I, I feel sorry for that part of Hunter Biden. I think his father exploited him. But the reality is he's still a danger to the public. He's driving an automobile or holding a gun. But they don't care about that. No, they, they come don't. and send it to my apartment when, I, when I'm willing to talk to them civilly myself. And uh, second, I can tell you, I, I never, ever represented a foreign national. I, in fact, I have in my contracts a refusal to do it because from the time I got out of being mayor, I didn't want to lobby. Never did it to Bush, never did it to Obama, never did it with Trump. And I can prove it. Just give me an opportunity. But they so will Instead, they had a breakdown. I wouldn't say breakdown, but smash on my doors uh, in a frightening way. Lucky I don't get frightened very easily. I handle them very professionally and they handle me very professionally. I want to make that point. Also, Hunter, I am a lawyer who has prosecuted a lot more serious cases that have been prosecuted in the U.S. Attorney's Office since I left. And the reality is that that warrant is completely illegal. The only way you can get a search warrant is if you can show that there's some evidence that the person is going to destroy the evidence or is going to or is going to run away with the evidence. Well, I've had it for two years and I haven't destroyed it. And they also got it from the iCloud. So uh, there was no there was no justification for that warrant. It is an illegal, unconstitutional warrant, uh, one of many that this Department of Injustice tragically has done. And it breaks my heart because I belong to the Justice Department. And I think I had a record that's a hell of a lot better than theirs. Joe Biden said he didn't know, the Lincoln Project knew, the guys who covered up child molestation, but Joe Biden says he didn't know that this raid was coming. Do you take that at face value? Uh, maybe he doesn't remember. I'm not sure if he can retain anything for more than about you know the, the time it takes to read it. But in any event, who cares if he knew or not? And the reality is how, how the Lincoln Project knowing means that they have a serious leak in a very important investigation. We have been warning of that for two years. My lawyer, Bob Costello, has written to them four times to plug up the leaks. They've done nothing to do that. So, so, so and just then, to frame of course, this, by, and, uh, may I interrupt you? I, just, I should have done this at the outset. I, I just want to no, make please. absolutely certain that we understand, our viewers understand, what it is the Justice Department says they're investigating. We've read it's a FARA violation. Is there something else? What have they said to you about what they're looking into. So I just wanted to refresh everyone's memory. Uh, one of the leaders of the Lincoln Project used to work for a company that I managed to get myself into to work. And um, I just wanted to remind everyone that because I worked there for almost a year before leaving to garner information while that person was working at Edelman. They haven't said anything. They won't explain to me what they're looking into for two years. Uh, we've called them five, six occasions, said, tell us what you're investigating. We'll come in and address it. No, just come in and talk to us. Tell us about your whole life. Of course, that's ridiculous. And uh, so I have to go. I have to go as a lawyer on the search warrant. The search warrant is purportedly based on one single failure to file for representing a Ukrainian national or official that 
I never represented. I have never represented a Ukrainian national or official before the United States government. I've declined it several times. I've had contracts in countries like Ukraine. In the contract is a clause that says I will not engage in lobbying or foreign representation. I don't do it because I felt it would be too compromising. Here I am in the middle of representing the president of the United States on a charge that I believe he was innocent of. I had great passion about that. If you're a lawyer and you're representing an innocent man, there's no greater burden you can have. And my sole concentration, and I am so offended by the things they've said about me, my sole concentration from the beginning here, Tucker, was to find evidence that would prove what I knew, that he was innocent of Russia collusion and that he was innocent of doing anything improper. He did exactly what a president should do with the president of Ukraine. He just going to say this again. Uh, I infiltrated Edelman in 2013. Kind of, it was almost as if I knew. Asked him to investigate right. a vice president who violated our laws over and over again. 30 years of the Biden crime family violating our laws. That is what is on the hard drive that they have censored. And that's I mean, why they want to put me in jail. One of the great ironies is the Democratic Party is hysterical on the subject of Russia, in part because they've taken so much money from Ukraine, which, of course, fears Russia and has for, for an awful long time. They're being paid to hate Russia. Uh, but let me just ask you, they, so now they've taken your phone, they've, taken, they've got all your texts, they've got all your digital communications. So unless you've been in mass 12 hours a day for the last five years, like, is there anybody who could, no, it's a sincere question. I'm not, I mean, is there anybody who the Justice Department was out for you and they've got every text you've ever sent and every email that they couldn't find something to charge you with? Do you think this is going to remain a FARA investigation or could it get much bigger quickly? Well, I think it it should get much bigger. I think they should be investigated for blatantly violating my constitutional rights, the president's constitutional rights in the middle of the impeachment defense. They invaded, without telling me, my uh, iCloud. They took documents that are privileged, and then they unilaterally decided what they could read and not read. So the prosecutors, the Justice Department, spied on me. And that is, if that is not taken seriously, if that doesn't result in their being sanctioned, the case being dismissed, and it's stopping, this is no longer uh, a free co- we might as well be in you know East Berlin before the wall fell. This is this is tactics only known in a dictatorship where you you seize a lawyer's records right in the middle of his representation of his client. Uh, they, I mean, you, you should be prosecuted and disbarred for that. You shouldn't yeah, be prosecuting somebody else. I agree. I agree with they're, that. They're, I agree with disgrace. that. Uncritically, they're, they're a disgrace to a great department. They're a disgrace to a great department that I served honorably and well. It's shocking. I hope you'll come back. I have a feeling we're going to be hearing a lot about this story. Former Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, he's going to be back. It's going to be real, real good. And we're the news now. So I am going to be so busy next week. My daughter's leaving on Wednesday. So I'll be trying really, really hard. I'm going to lean on my counterpart for support on this, um, you know, to get these pieces out uh, to vindicate because no one's done it. And so we're going to put it out. It's going to be so awesome. 
But they took the bait. Like many of you realized they took the bait. Now, I just wanted to share with you. Um, I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to tell all of you on YouTube, I have to turn off the YouTube channel. Well, I mean, I can fight it. So who cares? Whatever. They, they can't give me a copy. No, I don't know. If, let me give us an intermission quickly. And everyone wants to listen to Tom McDonald. So let's, uh, let's pick the, the right one to, to, to view. I think that's going to be the better song right now because we need it. Cause we are indeed living in a clown world. This is a clown show and um, it's kind of, it's kind of sad, isn't it? That we're in this like this. It's just so sad. It is. It's, it's very sad. So let's, uh, let's take a quick break. You worry about leaving a better planet for our kids. How about leaving better kids for our planet? Entire generation offended and everything. Getting mad that a human thinks all lives matter. We don't need black or white or left or right. All we need is common sense. We need balance. We're all in the same boat. Why are you trying to make homes? If they say we say this is madness. I'm offended that you're offended by me taking offense. You can't build a wall. Why does your house have a fence? I believe in two genders. I'm ahead of the rest. I'm just confused when a dude has a beard and some breasts. We won't always agree. Nope. I don't hate all beliefs. I mean, I didn't even get coffee. I just grabbed a Coke because I wanted to watch the video. <laughs> All right. So we're going to shift gears a little bit because we need to educate ourselves on propaganda. Propaganda is a big deal. Okay. Everything that is happening is, has happened before. And I don't think people understand just how history repeats itself. See, when President Trump was uh, coming up, and uh, running for office and when he was gonna state it in 2015, I was concerned. Concerned because of the people that were flocking to him. I had seen the same type of maneuvers in history. And it seems, you know, a lot of us want to vilify Nixon, but it's all about the people around you. That's how they tackled him. Uh, not a lot of people know the story of Nixon, but I thought it was important today to revisit that for a little bit. Just so that you can realize that what the Democrats wanted to do was create another Watergate. That is exactly what they wanted to do. So I want uh, th this audio clip kind of talks about things that happened leading up to Nixon's resignation. And I want you to, you know, try to see the similarities and patterns in what they say in what is happening now, because I found an exceptional audio clip of Noam Chomsky talking about that. <laughs> You're going to see how history repeats itself because they were so successful then. They had the same maneuvers and even some of the same players. Take a listen. Intrigue, grievously bad judgment and tidal waves of booze. Oh, and of course there was Watergate, which ended in the resignation of a president, which probably remains the single most famous political scandal in American history. In its wake, it became clear to Richard Nixon that his removal was inevitable and that he would have to do the unthinkable, resign his office. Today, we're going to take a look at everything that happened in the days leading up to Nixon's resignation. 
But before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the Weird History Channel and let us know in the comments below what other U.S. presidential topics you would like to hear more about. Okay, my fellow Americans, this video is not a crook. Having previously served as the United States 36th Vice President, Richard Nixon was voted into the highest office in the land in 1969. He was a Republican who had formerly been a representative and later senator for California. First elected to serve in the federal government in 1946, Nixon developed a staunch anti-communist reputation and only narrowly lost the 1960 presidential election to John F. Kennedy. During his presidency, Nixon ended the war in Vietnam, opened diplomatic relations with China, and established the Environmental Protection Agency. However, his presidency would come to be defined on June 17, 1972, when five men were caught breaking into the Democratic Party headquarters at the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C. A series of articles written for the Washington Post by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein linked the men to the president's re-election committee, and from there, the scandal grew. In 1973, Watergate special counsel Archibald Cox subpoenaed the secret tapes Nixon made of his Oval Office meetings. And long story short, an 18-minute gap in the recordings came to light. Though it didn't prove anything, it made many suspicious that Nixon had personally known about the cover-up. In November of 1973, Nixon gave an interview on television in which he famously said, People have got to know whether their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Despite his fighting spirit, however, his allies increasingly abandoned him, and the evidence against him mounted. Nixon was soon informed that the Senate, with a Democrat majority, had enough bipartisan support to achieve the necessary two-thirds majority vote to impeach. The writing was on the wall. He would have to resign. And he wasn't happy about it. Getting drunk and blasting a movie soundtrack is something your college roommate Tad might do on a Saturday night, but it was also one of Richard Nixon's pastimes. Nixon loved to get soused and listen to the score from Victory at Sea, a 26-part documentary about World War II naval combat that was made in the 1950s. Don't judge Nixon or Tad too harshly. Nixon was far from being alone in his love of this particular series soundtrack. The music, which had been recorded by the NBC Symphony Orchestra, was critically acclaimed, as was the entire run of the show it came from. If you're wondering what Nixon's second favorite thing to listen to was, take it from us. It's tough to dance to. Because when Nixon wasn't inebriated and listening to Victory at Sea, he was usually busy listening to tapes of himself. Tricky Dick was going to replay the tapes recorded in the Oval Office on endless repeat, especially the parts that were being used as evidence against him as his presidency was crumbling. The 25th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States provides that, in case of the removal of the president from office or of his death or resignation, the vice president shall become president if the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. This amendment would automatically kick in if Nixon resigned but some didn't want to wait for impeachment or resignation to unfold procedurally. Some claimed it was too dangerous to stand around waiting for Nixon to voluntarily resign, recklessly endanger the security of the United States, or be removed from office. Rumors about using the 25th Amendment to replace Nixon with Vice President Gerald Ford on the grounds that he was no longer fit for office began to circulate. The President of the United States is the Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. military which led some to imagine fanciful scenarios about him calling upon the nation's forces to maintain his position. 
Colorful rumors included a sympathetic U.S. Air Force, the Army's 82nd Airborne, or even the Marines staging a coup to keep the president in power. The Soviets, the great Cold War foe of the United States, were even cast in these imagined plots as a nefarious force maneuvering both politically and militarily to keep Nixon in the White House. For some reason. These fever dreams were ignored by most. And rather than calling up the military, Nixon hid out in his office at the executive building across the street from the White House, or in the Oval Office, drinking and brooding over where it all went wrong. A few in power were more than just worried about Nixon's behavior. One such was Defense Secretary James Schlesinger, who felt he had to step in, and not as a shoulder to cry on. He reached out to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and ordered that before they did anything President Nixon ordered them to do, they had to bring it to him first. Schlesinger also took it upon himself to instruct the military not to follow any orders for a nuclear strike that Nixon may issue. But that wasn't enough. Schlesinger was so concerned with an erratic Nixon that he had various contingency plans drawn up for what to do in case the president would not leave the White House willingly. We have to assume it involved more than just the phrase, pretty please. These actions were necessary to save the nation, at least according to Schlesinger. There is no documentation of any such orders or plans, and no public officials have ever corroborated the stories. Schlesinger's patriotic efforts to protect the democratic integrity of his country, whether real or self-promoting myth, were never necessary. The transition of power went smoothly. As for Schlesinger, Gerald Ford fired him for insubordination in 1975. He was later appointed as the first Secretary of Energy by Jimmy Carter, who also fired him a couple years later in 1979. His bosses may have found him difficult for the same reason. As journalist Paul Glastris notes, Schlesinger was unbearably arrogant and impatient with lesser minds who disagreed with him. In his final days in the White House, Richard Nixon slept very little and drank a whole lot. There were even accounts of him walking up and down the White House halls at all hours, talking to portraits of former presidents and giving speeches to the pictures on the wall. And to be clear, these weren't magic talking portraits. Those are just at Hogwarts. Given this sort of behavior, Nixon's staff became concerned that he would hurt himself, or worse. The president reportedly talked often about how military officers fall on their swords, as they say, to take their own lives and avoid humiliation. He's once even alleged to have said that he bitterly regretted not owning a pistol that could do the job. After that, his advisors decided to take away his sleeping pills, just in case... Richard Nixon told his Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, that he would be leaving office in early August of 1974. One of the White House staff was able to listen in on the call and has reported that Nixon was clearly drunk, slurring his words and out of control. Only a few days before that call took place, the two men had had dinner together. After eating, Nixon reportedly asked Kissinger what his legacy would be. Kissinger tried to reassure the president he would be given credit for his accomplishments. Nixon is alleged to have broken down in tears, fell to his knees, and asked Kissinger to pray with him. So the two men prayed together. Then Kissinger patted Nixon on the back, hugged him, and helped him to his feet. After that, they had another drink, which is understandable. On August 8, 1974, Richard Nixon announced his resignation to the people of the United States. 
However, shortly before he made a speech, he met with members of Congress. Reports say that Nixon broke down in tears before them, and as he prepared to deliver his statement to the nation, he continued to cry. The makeup artists are said to have had to work around Nixon's tears as they tried to make him presentable for a television audience. They must have done an alright job. The address was well received by most members of the media, despite the fact that Nixon didn't admit any wrongdoing. Richard Nixon may have been in deep denial about his situation, but his wife Pat knew what was coming. While her husband met with politicians and readied his speeches, Pat very pragmatically began to pack up the White House. Starting two days before her husband made his public announcement, Pat Nixon was working to get the family's possessions into boxes for the move. Aides report she spent many sleepless days and nights on the project. So, if you were President of the United States, what would you do on your last night in the White House? Well, if you're like Richard Nixon, you'd stay up making phone calls till 2 a.m. After that, he made his way down to the White House kitchen at around what he thought was 4 a.m., but was actually 6 a.m., because the President's watch had stopped. As he said, the battery had run out, worn out, at 4 o'clock the last day I was in office. By that day, I was worn out too. Since it was morning, Nixon decided to hang around and chat with the White House kitchen staff. Then he ordered one last breakfast at taxpayer expense. It was a large meal of eggs and hash. This is technically the last full meal he had in the White House, although he did subsequently order one last snack before he left. Pineapple, cottage cheese, and a glass of milk. Ugh, I'll pass. Though he didn't believe he had done anything wrong, Nixon was eventually convinced to accept a pardon from Gerald Ford. This pardon was issued on September 8, 1974. Nixon then gave a statement admitting he was wrong in not acting more decisively and more forthrightly in dealing with Watergate. In the end, he never admitted to any criminal acts. Retirement didn't suit Richard M. Nixon. According to biographers, after Nixon returned home to San Clemente, California, he was a soul in torment. Despite the fact he had no job, he still showed up at his desk every morning at 7 a.m. So what do you think? What are your impressions of Nixon's legacy? Let us know in the comments below. And while you're at it... So I had to, like, share the screen, obviously, because I don't want, um, you know, to get ding-dinged. But as you can see, it was the same MO, but their, uh, I would say their plan didn't work. And they used the same people. So we know Roger Stone was very loyal to Nixon. And the minute they saw Roger Stone flanking the president, they had studied Stone all those years. They knew his weaknesses, his vices, his abilities, his incapabilities, everything. So they tried to go around this way, that way, this way. But something else that people don't seem to understand is that Watergate wasn't just about Nixon and Kissinger and uh, it was about what we're seeing now and that is the propaganda. So I want to share with you this audio clip that's pretty awesome of Nam Chomsky talking about Watergate. Watergate is a perfect example. I've discussed it at length in our book, in fact, and Indeed. elsewhere. Indeed. It's a perfect example of the way the press was subordinated to power. But this, in fact, this brought down a president. Let me give you an Let's take a look. Uh, what happened there, uh, here it's kind of interesting because you, know, you can't do experiments in history. 
But here, history was kind enough to set one up, set, set up, set one up for us. Uh, the Watergate exposures happened to take place at exactly the same time as another set of exposures, uh, namely the exposures of COINTEL Pro. Oh, sorry, you have to explain it's, that. It's interesting that I have to explain it because it's vastly more significant than Watergate. That already makes my point. Uh, COINTEL Pro was a program of subversion carried out not by a couple of petty crooks, but by the National Political Police, the FBI, under four administrations. It began in the late Eisenhower administration, ran up till... This is the aimed at the Socialist Workers Party. No, the Socialist Workers Party was one tiny fragment of it. It began, uh, by the time it got through, I won't run through the whole story, it was aimed at the entire new left, at the women, women's movement, at the whole black uh, uh, movement. It was extremely broad. Its actions went as far as political assassination. Now, what's the difference between the two? Very clear. In Watergate, Richard Nixon went after half of U.S. private power, namely the Democratic Party, and, and power can defend itself. So therefore, that's a scandal. He didn't do anything. Nothing happened. Look, I was on Nixon's enemies list. I didn't even know. Nothing ever happened. No, but, uh, but nonetheless, you wouldn't say it was an insignificant event. No, it was, a case, it was a case power. where half of U.S. power defended itself against a person who had obviously stepped out of line. Uh, that's so, and, and the fact that the press thought that was important shows that they think powerful people ought to be able to defend themselves. Now, whether there was a question of principle involved happens to be easily checked in this case. Uh, one Did you hear that? The press decided that powerful people should be able to defend themselves. He said the press was released. Pay attention. Any part of the COINTEL Pro program was itself far more significant in terms of principle than all of Watergate. And if you look at the whole program, I mean, it's not even a discussion, but you have to ask me what COINTEL Pro is. You know what Watergate is. There couldn't be a more dramatic example of the subordination of the educated opinion to power here in, in England as well as the United States. Interesting, right? Obviously, his rhetoric has changed, and that happens, you know, when you starve and you need money and you need things, you know, people do that. Um, so let's watch more detail about this. Are you ready for this? I don't, you know, not many people have seen this one. It's going to be quite interesting. It's now a familiar, if chilling, Cold War fable. Most of us would say it's old hat. But is it? The thought police are joining you. The chief job of a newspaper is to inform. To For decades, the freedoms of thought and expression have been central to Western democracy. The media sees itself as free, fearless, stroppy. And for many in power, the press are too strong. So the idea that Orwell's warning is still relevant may seem bizarre. A, uh, but not a, to Noam Chomsky, who thinks the image of a truth-seeking media is a sham. Chomsky has devoted his life to questioning Western state power. Having virtually invented modern linguistics by the age of 30, Chomsky joined the gathering swell of protest in the 60s. What it is, I'm Noam Chomsky, I'm a, I'm a faculty at MIT, and I've been uh, 
getting more and more heavily involved in anti-war activities for the last few years. Since then, Chomsky has championed a brand of anarchism, becoming deeply hostile to established power and privilege. And in recent years, he's refined what he calls the propaganda model of the media. Well, on a brighter note, commercial break. The government, he claims that the mass media brainwash under freedom. Not only do the media systematically suppress and distort, when they do present facts, the context obscures their real meaning. You might wish to stay on and listen. The invasion of East Timor by the Indonesian army caused indescribable slaughter. Hundreds of thousands died. But it was more or less ignored by the mainstream Western media because, Chomsky argues, we were selling arms to the aggressors. But wars where the West's interests are directly involved get a different treatment. For Chomsky, coverage of the Gulf War was servile. Trivial criticisms were aired. Fundamental ones were ignored. Hello. I'm Drew Mark. Nice to see you. Hi. Naturally, um, Chomsky uh, has numerous critics. Which Is the media so influential? I'm over here. Okay. Have dissident views really been excluded in an age of relative media diversity, in the age of the internet? Right. Um, this is one of what about Chomsky's own access? Okay. What about this very program? Okay, Andrew, in your answer. Professor Chomsky, could we start by uh, listening to you explain what the propaganda model, as you call it, is? For many people, the idea that propaganda is used by democratic rather than nearly authoritarian governments will be a strange one. Well, uh, the term propaganda fell into disfavor at the t around the Second World War, but in the 1920s and the 1930s, it was commonly used and in fact advocated uh, not by leading intellectuals, by the founders of modern political science, by uh, Wilsonian progressives, and of course by the public relations industry as a necessary technique uh, to overcome the danger of democracy. The institutional structure of the media is quite straightforward. We're talking about the United States, but it's not very different elsewhere. The, uh, the major, there, there are sectors, but the agenda-setting media, the ones that sort of set the framework for everyone else, like the New York Times and the Washington Post and so on, these are major corporations, parts of even bigger conglomerates, like other in corporate institutions, they have a product with, and a market. Uh, their market is advertisers, that is, other businesses. Their product is privileged, relatively privileged audiences, more or so less. They're, they're selling audiences to They're selling privileged audiences. These are big business, big corporations selling privileged audiences to other corporations. Now the question is, what, would a ra what picture of the world would a rational person expect to come out of this structure? And then we draw some conclusions about what you'd expect, and then we check, and yes, that's the picture of the world that comes out. And is this anything more than the idea that basically the press is relatively right-wing, with some exceptions, because it's owned by big business, which is a truism, is well known? Well, I would call the press relatively liberal. Here I agree with the right-wing critics. Uh, so especially the New York Times and the Washington Post, which are called, <clears throat> without a trace of irony, the New York Times is called the establishment left in, say, major foreign policy journals. And that's correct, but what's not recognized is that the role of the liberal intellectual establishment is to set very sharp bounds on how far you can go, this far and no further. Give me some examples of that. Well, let's take, say, the Vietnam War, the probably the leading critic, and in fact one of the leading dissident intellectuals in the mainstream is Anthony Lewis of the New York Times, 
who did finally come around to opposing the Vietnam War about 1969, about a year and a half after Corp America had more or less ordered Washington to call it off. Uh, and his picture from then on is that the war, as he put it, began with blundering efforts to do good. But it ended up <clears throat> by 1969 being a disaster and costing us too much. So what would so the, the non-propaganda model have told Americans about the Vietnam War well, at the same time? Same thing that the mainstream press was telling them about Afghanistan. The United States invaded South had first of all, in the 1950s, it's up a standard Latin American-style terror state, which had massacred tens of thousands of people, but was unable to, mean, to control local, a local uh, uprising. And everyone knows, at least every specialist knows that's what it was. And when Kennedy came in in 1961, they had to make a decision because the government was collapsing under local attack. So the U.S. just invaded the country. In 1961, the U.S. Air Force started bombing South Vietnamese civilians, authorized napalm, crop destruction. Then in 1965, January, February 1965, uh, the next major escalation took place against South Vietnam, not against North Vietnam, that was a sideshow. That's what the, an honest press would be saying, but you can't find a trace of it. Now, if the press is a, a censoring organization, um, tell me how that works. Is the, you're not suggesting that um, proprietors phone one another up or that many journalists get their copies spiked, as we say? It's um, actually, well, well <clears throat> you may recall, has an essay called Literary Censorship in England, which was supposed to be the introduction to Animal Farm, except that it never appeared, in which he points out, look, I'm writing about a totalitarian society, but in free democratic England, it's not all that different. And then he says uh, uh, unpopular ideas can be silenced without any force. And then it's two sentences response, which is not very profound, but captures it. He says two reasons. First, the press is owned by wealthy men who have every interest in not having certain things appear. But second, the whole educational system from the beginning on through just gets you to understand that there are certain things you just don't say. Well, spelling these things out, that's perfectly correct. I mean, it's the first sentence is what we expand. This is, this is what I don't get, because it suggests that, I mean, I'm a judge, it might be are self-censoring. No, not right. self-censoring. Uh, there's a filtering system that starts in kindergarten and goes all the way through. Uh, and it, it's not going to work 100%, but it's pretty effective. All right, so this is pretty old, but I want you to understand what he's saying. He's pretty much talking about the indoctrination of our youth. Are you listening to this? He's making it clear that the biggest problems that we have is that the media is propaganda, that they're owned, that they will say what their overlords tell them and what they want shown. Now, in the previous uh, clip that I played in regards to Nixon, everyone noticed the common factors, the good and the bad, and the bad was Kissinger. Now you must think, what link did Henry Kissinger have with the Trump administration and the Lincoln Project. Now, one I can give you is Mad Dog Mattis. All I have to do is direct you to my website, torysays.com. Try to find the article about Mad Dog Mattis and how I had released a video of him at the Bilderberg meeting. But you will also notice that Theranos, a company that was under scrutiny, that was investigating blood, <laughs> Right? Um, the board members, 
of which was General Mattis and, you guessed it, Henry Kissinger. Now, not a lot of people had talked about his connection to the Lincoln Project. I think people need to start just taking a look into that. That's just a suggestion. But what you're about to see is years of knowing this information and walking right into it. While I look at the comments as I'm listening to this with you, I see that a lot of people are like, well, why isn't President Trump calling out Gates? And why isn't he calling out Fauci? And why is he praising him? Why? So they could just have more reasons to talk about him in a negative view? That's not what he's going to do. It's not classy. He's very classy. He'll come out when he needs to with the punches, just like most people do. Most people are patient. Most people hold their tongue. Now, I lack that patience a lot. I wish I had more to, more of it, uh, but I guess circumstances and, you know, being super rough around the edges uh, doesn't, doesn't help. But I want you to pay attention to what he's talking about now how they indoctrinate from youth. He said it starts at kindergarten. Uh, it selects for obedience and subordination. Uh, and especially, I think that so, so, so stroppy people won't make it. To there'll be influence. behavior problems or if you read uh, applications to a graduate school, you see that people will tell you he's not, uh, he doesn't get along too well with his colleagues. You, you know how to interpret those things. I, I, I'm just interested in this because I was brought up like a lot of people um, probably post-Watergate film and so on, to believe that journalism was a crusading uh, craft and that there were a lot of um, disputatious, stroppy, difficult people in journalism. And I have to say, I think I know some of them. Well, I know some of the best and best-known investigative reporters in the United States, I won't mention names, but like, whose attitude toward the media is much more cynical than mine. In fact, <clears throat> they regard the media as a sham. And they know and they consciously talk about how they try to play it like a violin. If they see a little opening, they'll try to squeeze something in that ordinarily wouldn't make it through. Uh, and it's perfectly true that the majority, I'm, I'm sure you're speaking for the majority of journalists who are trained, have it driven into their heads, that this is a crusading uh, profession, adversarial, we stand up against power, very self-serving view. Uh, on the other hand, in my opinion, I hate to make a value judgment, but the better journalists, and in fact the ones who are often regarded as the best journalists, have quite a different picture, and I think a very realistic one. How, how, can, you, how can you know that I'm self-censoring? How can you I'm know that you're self-censoring? I'm sure you believe everything you're saying. But what I'm saying is if you believe something different, you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting. We have a press which has, seems to me, a relatively wide range of view. There is a pretty small-c conservative uh, majority, but there are left-wing papers, there are liberal papers, and there is a pretty large offering of views running from the far right to the far left for those who want them. I don't that's see how a propaganda model can... That's not quite true. I mean, there have been good studies of the British press, and you can look at them by James Curran as the major one, uh, which points out that uh, up until the 1960s, there was indeed a kind of a social democratic press, which sort of represented much of the interests of working people and ordinary people and so on. And it was very successful. I mean, the Daily Herald, for example, had not only more, uh, it had far higher circulation than other newspapers, but also a dedicated circulation. Furthermore, the tabloids at that time, the Mirror and the Sun, were kind of labor-based. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, By the 60s, that was all gone. 
uh, and it disappeared under the pressure of capital resources. What was left was overwhelmingly the sort of center to right press with some dissidents. It's true. I mean, I mean, we've got, I would say, a couple of large local newspapers which are left of center, and which are, put, you know, putting in um, neo-Keynesian views which the you call the elites are strongly hostile to. It's interesting that you call neo-Keynesian left of center. I just call it straight center. Uh, the uh, <coughs> I mean, not left of center is a value term. I mean, sure, you could. But there's there's uh, and, and you're uh, very they're extremely good journalists in England. A number of them, they write very honestly and very good material. A lot of what they write couldn't appear here. On the other hand, if you look at the question overall, I don't think you're going to find a big difference. And the few, there aren't many studies of the British press, but the few that there are have found pretty much the same results, and I think the better journalists will tell you that. Uh, in fact, we can get, what you have to do is check it out in cases. So let's take, say, what I just mentioned, the Vietnam War. Uh, the British press did not have the kind of stake in the Vietnam War that the American press did because they weren't fighting it. Just check sometime and find out how many times you can find the American war in Vietnam described as a U.S. attack against South Vietnam, beginning clearly with outright aggression in 1961 and escalating to massive aggression in 65. If you can find 0.001% of the coverage saying that, you'll surprise me. And in a free press, 100% of it would have been saying that. Now, that's just a matter of fact. It has nothing to do with left and right. Let me come up to a more modern war which was the, uh, the Gulf War, which, um, again, you know, looking at uh, the press in Britain and watching television, at least American television, I was very, very well aware of the anti-Gulf War dissidents, mm -hmm. the, 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 the no blood for oil campaign. That's, that's not the dissidents. No blood See, for fact, oil isn't the dissidents? Uh, the, the, no, the uh, Saddam Hussein's attack on Kuwait took place on August 2nd. From August, within a few days, the great fear in Washington was that Saddam Hussein was going to withdraw and leave a puppet government, which would be pretty much what the U.S. had just done in Panama. The U.S. and Britain, therefore, moved very quickly to try to undercut the danger of withdrawal. By late August, uh, negotiation offers were coming from Iraq calling for a negotiated Iraqi withdrawal. The press wouldn't publish them here. It never published them in England. Uh, it uh, it did leak, however. There was a great debate about whether there no. should have been a negotiation. Sorry, settlement no, that was not a debate. There was a debate about whether you should continue with sanctions, which is a different question. Because the fact of the matter is we have good evidence that by late, by mid or late August, the sanctions have already worked. Because these stories are coming from high American officials in the State Department, former American officials like Richard Helm. Uh, they couldn't get the mainstream press to cover them, so, but they did manage to get one journal to cover them. Newsday, that's a suburban journal in Long Island, the purpose obviously being to smoke out the New York Times because it's the only thing that mattered. It came out in Newsday, and this continued, I won't go through the details, but this continued until January 2nd. At that time, the offers that were coming were apparently so meaningful to the State Department that State Department officials were saying that, look, this is negotiable, meaningful, maybe we don't accept everything, but it's certainly a basis for negotiated withdrawal. The press would not cover it. Newsday did. Uh, a few other people did. I have a couple of op-eds on it. And to my knowledge, you can check this, the first reference to any of this in England is actually in an article I wrote in The Guardian, which was in early January. You can check and see if there's an earlier reference. Okay, let's look at one of the other key examples, which you've looked at too, um, which would appear to go against your mm -hmm. idea, which is the Watergate. Watergate okay. is a perfect example. Well, I've discussed it at length in our book, in fact. And Indeed. Also 
So I, I, this is really important. We have to watch the whole thing and listen to it because it's telling you exactly what's happening now. This is him educating Mar beyond belief, telling him, stop, that's not what happened. This is what happened. This is what the media said, but this is what happened. Now, here we go back into Watergate, into more explanation than, the, than just those two, mi two um, minutes that I played earlier so that you can understand where we're going with this. It's a perfect example of the way the press was subordinated to power. But this, In fact, this brought down a president. Let me give you just a minute. Let's take a look. Uh, Did you hear that? This is how the press was subordinated to power. Ideal. Remember the article I wrote, how the New York Times, we invent the news? They lied. They reported. No one in the intelligence community did. The New York Times did, saying uh, that Putin is paying people to kill American soldiers. They decided we're just going to invent a story because we need hype. And they wrote multiple articles about that. CNN thumped it. Everybody thumped it. They were subordinated this authority to speak from a point of authority, hence why they had this cocky ambition that, you know, Tori needs to shut up and she shouldn't be in the top, top Twitch streamers and Twitch needs to remove her because she's talking too much truth and that's a problem for us. You know, it, it came on the heels of the New York Times invent the news hit piece. I mean, come on. He's telling you back then during Watergate, the problem was the press. It wasn't what was going on. It was the press giving a voice to lies and thumping it and putting it out as if it's 100% true. Circular reporting was the basis of this stupid PP dossier. We all know who had hookers pee on them, and that was Harry Reid. <laughs> we know that. Mr. Theraband, who can't work a Theraband and wanted to sue them because he flicked himself in the face. These are real things. This is it. And, you know... Chomsky, like myself, is a linguist, and it is very important to pay attention to the words used, the definitions, and the nuances. Like he told Mar, you probably believe everything you say. He doesn't. He's been trained that way, just like everybody else. I mean, when I was watching, again, the CNN undercover video by Project Veritas, and I was paying attention to... Um, uh, the reporter, the director, speaking about it, he was conflicted. He knew it was BS, but he was okay with the BS. But then he stood up for the BS. He was, that was dissonance. Like, he was so confused because he knew what he was doing was wrong. And then he came into, like, the sense of realization when he talked about grassroots movements, saying everybody starts grassroots. What have I been saying? Nobody starts something with the intention to... Uh, you know, derail things and to cause harm and to just, you know, give hopium and not do what they've been doing. They start with the best intentions, but money, unfortunately, huh? That's too glorious for many people. And they will stop at nothing. They'll create new platforms and then charge you there or do whatever. It's it's just, you know, it's the change that happens and it's inevitable. And then they believe that they're still doing good, but in fact, they're doing harm. And it's so hard to show it to them. The more you put it in their face, the more they push you away saying you're whatever. He's telling him that. Listen to this Watergate piece. The next five minutes, 
will explain to you everything that has happened in the past four years. Now, if I would have shown this video, and I did play this audio, I believe, a couple of years ago, you wouldn't have understood it as you do now. What happened there, here it's kind of interesting because you, know, you can't do experiments in history, but here history was kind enough to set one up, set, set up, set one up for us. Uh, the Watergate exposures happened to take place at exactly the same time as another set of exposures, uh, namely the exposures of COINTEL Pro. Oh, sorry, you have to explain it's, that. It's interesting that I have to explain it because it's vastly more significant than Watergate. That already makes my point. Uh, COINTEL Pro was a program of subversion carried out not by a couple of petty crooks, but by the National Political Police, the FBI, under four administrations. It began in the late Eisenhower administration, ran up till... This is the aims at the Socialist Workers' Party. No, the Socialist Workers' Party was one tiny fragment of it. It began, uh, by the time it got through, I won't run through the whole story, it was aimed at the entire new left, at the woman, women's movement, at the whole black uh, movement. It was extremely broad. Its actions went as far as political assassination. Now, what's the difference between the two? Very clear. In Watergate, Richard Nixon went after half of U.S. private power, namely the Democratic Party, and, and power can defend itself. So therefore, that's a scandal. He didn't do anything. Nothing happened. Look, I was on Nixon's enemies list. I didn't even know. Nothing ever happened. None, but, none, but nonetheless, you wouldn't say it was an insignificant event. No, it was, a case, it was a case power. where half of U.S. power defended itself against a person who had obviously stepped out of line. Uh, that's so, and, and the fact that the press thought that was important shows that they think powerful people ought to be able to defend themselves. Now, whether there was a question of principle involved happens to be easily checked in this case. Uh, one tiny part of the COINTEL Pro program was itself far more significant in terms of principle than all of Watergate. And if you look at the whole program, I mean, it's not even a discussion, but you have to ask me what COINTEL Pro is. You know what Watergate is. There couldn't be a more dramatic example of the subordination of the educated opinion to power here in, the, in England as well as the United States. I know you've concentrated on uh, foreign affairs and, and some of the key areas. Mm -hmm. We've talked a lot about domestic policy. But, well, I'd like to come on to that because it still seems to me that on a range of pretty important issues for the establishment, there is serious dissent. Gingrich um, and his neoconservative agenda in America um, has been pretty savagely lampooned. Um, the uh, apparently um, fixed succession for the Republican candidacy at the presidential election has come apart. Uh, Clinton, who is a powerful figure, uh, is having great difficulty with Whitewater. Everywhere one looks, one sees disjunctures, uh, openings within a spectrum so narrow uh, that you really have to look hard to find well, it. Well, let me, let me can, can, can I just stop you there? Because because you say the spectrum is narrow, but on the one hand, let me we've illustrate. Got, we've, we've got flat, tax, flat tax Republicans mm -hmm. right the way through to relatively big state Democrats. Find one. Big, Find big a big state Democrat. The position now is exactly what Clinton said. The year of big government is over. Big government has failed. The war on poverty has failed. We have to get rid of this entitlement business. That was Clinton's campaign message in 1992. That's the Democrats. Uh, the uh, the diff what we have now is a difference between sort of moderate Republicans and extreme Republicans. Actually, it's well known that there's been a long-standing sort of split in the American business community. It's not precise, but it's sort of general between high-tech uh, 
capital intensive, internationally oriented business, which tends to be what's called liberal and lower tech, more nationally oriented, more labor intensive industry, which is what's called conservative. Now, between those sectors, there have been differences. And in fact, if you take a look at American politics, it oscillates pretty much between those limits. There's good work on this. Incidentally, the person who's done the most extensive work is Thomas Ferguson, who's a political scientist. One, one more example, which will have some resonance in, in Britain and Europe, is the great argument over the North American Free Trade Association, the NAFTA argument, where if, interesting. if there is something which one could describe as um, a global opposition movement, that is uh, mm -hmm. trade union, environmental, community-based, mm -hmm. then it was certainly present in the anti-NAFTA. Um, Shall I tell you what happened? What, Shall I tell you what happened? All I was going to say is that, that those reported. arguments were well, you no, know, we were well aware of those that arguments. That is flatly false. They were not permitted into the press, and I've documented this. I'll give you references if you like. We, could be, we read all the pages in Britain is all I would no, say. I did not. For example, let me ask you, did you read the report of the, of the Office of Techn Technology Association of Congress? Well, did I, you, sorry, did you read the report of the Labor Advisory Committee? Well, I don't, I don't get these sorry. reports, but I read, no, I, read, I, read, I read many articles about the anti-NAFTA argument. I'll tell you what you're... Very, I'm sorry. Very good stuff. Well, if you're interested in facts, I'll tell you what they are, and I'll even give you sources. The so he was like, I read many, many articles. So he gave bases. This is the problem. He read many, many articles. What did Chomsky tell him? You believe what you say because you give weight to the media. They have been given this torch that they are the ones that speak truth. But no one pulls the congressional reports. No one pulls the Senate reports. If they're there, they'll take one sentence and say, you don't need to read the rest of the 2,000 pages. I'll give it to you. Just like you don't need to read the bill. Just sign it. When it was the biggest perversion on American rights ever. This is how they operate. They created this, this uh, platform, the media, and media that includes movies and music, because so-and-so did it, you must. New York Times reported it, so I must. NBC said it, so it must be true. CNN is saying it, so it must be true. No. They get funded by interests. Their interest is not you, it's their advertisers. Their interest is not you, it's their paycheck. And like you said, there are many good investigative journalists, and I agree, like Lara Logan, but they do that thing. They play that violin, and then they find an opening, and they strike just a little bit, you know? So that way, it seems as if, hey, you know, why not? Let's just show that we're kind of balanced, and we're not sticking in one place. That's the whole point that there are really good people in places of these institutions that try and they monitor and watch. So it works both ways. It doesn't go one way. Remember that. So it's quite important that we pay attention to what he's saying here because it all makes sense. And you can see how Marr is completely offended because he's like, wait a minute, you want facts or you want to talk about articles? Now, Chomsky changed his tune. Again, a lot of people change their tune because all you have to look at is once you put them in a mode of starvation, and I've already passed that gap in 2019, that point where everything was taken from me. That's where they turn because I'll tell you what, very interesting fact, in 2020, I had, in January of 2020, I had everybody and their mother approach me. We'll give you this. Uh, we'd like to sign a contract with you. It's four years. It's this much. Guess what I said, guys? No. I said, no. 
No. Because what they do is they put you in a position of disadvantage and then they pounce. Well, you know, you know a lot of stuff. And if you want to whistleblow, you could do it through us. You'll give us information. These are big organizations, you guys. They're not, you know, little ones, very big institutions that came out and said, we love you to just do research for us. And, you know, and we'll pay you handsomely. Guess what I said? No, I was fine. Why? Because I knew exactly what they wanted to do. They knew that I had passed that hump and I was already being blessed by God for being so patient and so humbled. I was forced to be super humbled. And I didn't think it was warranted, but I guess it was. He knows best, right? He always does. Huh. But not everybody does. And this goes back to how COINTELPRO works. We've seen a lot of coin happen now. And you know what was funny? While I was in D.C., people were thinking, maybe you're coin. And I'm like, you obviously don't know me. Uh, the NAFTA agreement was signed more or less in secret by the three presidents in mid-August uh, of the, at the time of the right in the middle of the presidential campaign in mid-August. Now, there's a law in the United States, 1974 Trade Act, which requires that any trade-related issue be submitted to the Labor Advisory Committee, which is union-based, for assessment and analysis. It was never submitted to them. A day before they were supposed to give their final report in mid-September, it was finally submitted to them. They were infuriated. The unions are very right, pretty right-wing, but they were infuriated. They had never been shown this. They had strong, even at the time that they had to write the report, they were given 24 hours to write the report. They didn't have time to look at the text. Nevertheless, they wrote a very vigorous uh, analysis of it with alternatives presented, saying, look, we're not against NAFTA, we're against this version of it. They get a good analysis. Happened to be very similar to one that had been given by the Congressional Research Service, the Office of Technology Assessment. None of this ever entered the press. The only thing that entered the press was the kind of critique that they were willing to deal with. Uh, Mexico bashing, uh, right-wing nationalists, and, you know, and so on. That entered the press, but not the critical analysis of the labor movement. Well, now, I mean, somehow, by process of osmosis or something, I picked you, up quite a lot no, of anti-NAFTA arguments yeah, and, on the uh, basis of worker right. protection, environmental degradation. May I continue? This goes on in the press right until the end. Uh, by the end, there, there were big popular movements opposing it. It was extremely hard to suppress all of this, to suppress everything coming out of the labor movement, out of the popular movements, and so on. But they did. At the very end, it had reached such a point that there was concern that they might not be able to ram this through. Now, take a look at the New York Times and the Washington Post, say the liberal media and the, and the national ones in the last couple of weeks. And I'll tell you, I've written about it and tell you what you find. What you find is 100% support for NAFTA, refusal to allow it any of the popular arguments out, tremendous labor bashing. Can I come back to make sure that I understand the, the point about the liberal press as against the conservative press? Because in Britain over the last two years, um, politicians I come across are um, deeply irritated, ranging on furious about attacks on them in the press day after day um, on issues which have come to be known as sleaze. Um, they feel that they are harassed that they are misunderstood and that the press has got above itself is uppity and is destructive. That's the message that they are giving God. Now, are you saying that that That's whole true. process same doesn't matter as sure. it were, because it's, it's all part of the same? I mean, when the press, the same thing is true here. When the press focuses on the sex lives of politicians, 
reach for your pocket and see who's pulling out your wallet. I mean, because those are not the issues that matter to people. I mean, they're very marginal interests. The issues that matter to people are somewhere else. So as soon as you hear, you know, the press and, and presidential candidates and so on talking about values, as I say, put your hand on your wallet. And you know that something else has happened. But, it, but, but it's been much more than, certainly with us, it's been much more than, than, than uh, bed hopping. It's, it's also been about uh, taking money, it's been about the corporations sure. paying for yeah, corruption, for corrupt judges, or, fine topic. Uh, corrupt big, big, Yeah, corrupt party. Big business is not in favor of corruption, you know. And if the press focuses on corruption, Fortune magazine will be quite happy. They don't care about that. They, uh, they don't want the society to be corrupt. They want it to be run in their interest. That's a different thing. Uh, corruption uh, interferes with that. So, for example, when I was, let's say, I just happened to come back from India, uh, the Bank of India released an estimate, economists there, tell me it's low, that a third of the economy is black, meaning mostly rich businessmen not paying their taxes. Well, that makes the press, because in fact, certainly transnationals don't like it. They want the system to be run uh, without corruption, robbery, bribes, and so on, just pouring money in their pockets. So yes, that's a fine topic for the press. On the other hand, the topics I've talked about are not fine topics because they're much too significant. What would um, a press be like, do you think, without the propaganda model? What would we be reading in the papers that we don't read about now? I've just given a dozen examples. So now he admits, in a way, that press is propaganda. And he's like, all right, so if we don't have propaganda, what would we be reading? And Chomsky just gave him a shit ton of examples and he's sitting there like, what would we, how about NAFTA? How about the labor unions before they were hijacked? How about how everybody was against it and they signed that shit in secret? How about all of that? That would have come out, right? How about nobody read Obamacare? How about <laughs> Hillary Clinton was getting paid by foreign assets? How about Joe Biden was actually negotiating and giving away jobs, positions in federal institutions, visas. There's a lot more. So Joe Biden was doing all of that as vice president. That's what the media would have been reporting. The media would have been reporting. That's why I, I've even said, all right, he's a crackhead. All right, he has horse. But let's look at this, right? Let's look at this. Let's look at using the State Department to smuggle friends into Mexico. Let's look into their trip to Yemen. Let's look into the trip to the Vatican and who they met with and what they talked about. Let's look into how he lied in his book. Wait, we're going to get to that. I don't think anybody realized that yet. But I did. Uh, on every example that internally you've picked, I haven't picked. I mean, I could pick my own. I'm happy to let you pick them. On every one of those examples, I think you can demonstrate that there's been a severe distortion of what the facts of the matter are. This has nothing to do with left and right, as I've been stressing, and it has left the population pretty confused and marginalized. A free press would just tell you the truth. This has nothing to do and, with and, left and, and right. And, and given the power of um, big business, the power of the press, what can people do about this? They can do exactly what people do in the Haitian slums and hills, organize. In Haiti, which is the most, take that, most, most, the poorest country in the hemisphere, they created a very vibrant, lively civil society in the slums and the hills and conditions that most of us can't even imagine. Uh, they, we can do the same much more easily. You've got community activists in, in America. Yeah. You've got 
not I, I'm not talking about the community so-called communitarian movement. I'm That's talking about right. the local community activists and writers place. all over the place. All over the place. Take say a city like Boston, and the way all, all sorts of people they don't even know of each other's existence. Uh, it's there's a very large number of them. One of the things I do constantly is run around the country giving talks. One of my main purposes and the purposes of the people who invite me is to bring the people together, people in that area who are working on the same things and don't know of each other's existence because the resources are so scattered and the means of communication are so marginal that there isn't just much they can do about it. Now, there are, there are things, there are plenty of things that are happening. So take, say, community-based radio, which is sort of outside the system. I was going to ask That's you about that and about the Internet, which has certainly got pretty open access at the moment. Well, the Internet is a... I hope you guys heard what Chomsky said. In Haiti, in the slums, they've organized and they've kept themselves neutral. And he explained that I go around giving talks to people to bring people together that are like-minded, that can talk together and get things done together, right? This is how it works. You organize at a local level. Like he said, in the slums of Haiti, they're pretty well organized and efficient. That's what we need to do is organize and that's what terrifies them. Because once you organize at a grassroots level, and once you're the voice of the people, you are the news for the people, by the people. It's a game over for all of them. And that's what terrifies them. Because that's when the government is scared of you. Not because you're going to come out guns a-blazing. No, you don't need to do that. They will leave because they will have nowhere to hide. Their propaganda, their bullhorns no longer are effective because we are the news. We share the information. Let this be an awakening to see that all of these discussions have been had in the past and no one was listening. This is at a time when NAFTA was being signed and people were talking about, you know, the Oval Office and Oval Service with Monica Lewinsky when we all know it was rape, okay? We all know it was rape because no mistress has entertaining adult activities in the old office and holds on to a dress with evidence. That's stupid. And let's get this straight. There's cameras everywhere. There are always cameras everywhere. Let's put that straight. So again, it was never about that. It was about using something that would be easier for the people to swallow. We can't, <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> oh my gosh, to swallow. What were they going to say? He's hopping around to Epstein's Island with little kids. What are they going to say? What Hillary does with little kids? What are they going to say? The Muslim Brotherhood is in the house. What are they going to say? Clinton care, socialized medicine. What are they going to say? So they, the Republicans are just as guilty because they could have said the truth. But there was no media because the media has been weaponized against the people for a very long time. And they're owned. Their emails... Ah, I am going to send that email to Maggie Haberman. And I'm just going to ask her, what do you mean by this? Were you colluding with the Bidens about a story you were writing? How would you like me to spin this? <laughs> you know, it's, it's just so tiring, right? There's emails where the New York Times, like, how would you like us to spin this? Come on, come on. You want to call yourself a news reporter? Are you kidding? How do you want to spin this? I don't have to edit shit when I talk with people. I'll put it right out there raw. But you do. You have to take a little portion. But wait till we get the left rallied up. You think we can't do it? I mean, it's a tool, right? 
Wait till they find out all the brown and black people and the Native Americans that are going to be devastated by Wuhan, Kansas. Oh, that'll be fun to watch. I want to see them stop. I mean, you know, maybe we could just tell them, I guess AOC was right. You know, all of this stuff. Speaking, well, we'll talk about that after he finishes his closing. I want you guys to listen to the end of this interview. Like most technology is a very double-edged sword. Uh, it had like any technology, including printing, it has a liberatory potential, but it also has a, uh, a, a, a repressive potential. And there's a battle going on about which way it's going to go, as there was for radio and television and so on. About ownership and advertising. Not, right. And about just what's going to be in it and who's going to have access to it. Remember, incidentally, that the Internet is an elite operation. Uh, most of the population of the world has never even made a phone call. You know? So that's certainly not on the Internet. Uh, nevertheless, it's, it, it does have democratizing potential. And there's a struggle going on right now as to whether that's going to be realized or whether it will turn into something like a home marketing service and a way of marginalizing people even further. That discussion went on in the 1920s over radio. And it's interesting how it turned out. It's when, uh, it went on over television. It's not going on over the Internet. Uh, and that's a matter of popular struggle. Look, the, we don't live the way we did 200 years ago or even 30 years ago. There's been a lot of progress. It hasn't been gifts from above. It's been the result of people getting together and refusing to accept uh, the dictates of authoritarian institutions. And there's no reason to think that that's over. You've been portrayed, and some would say, Katie, portrayed yourself as a lonely dissident voice. You clearly don't I feel do not, lonely at all. I say nothing like that. I, I certainly do not portray myself that way. I can't begin to accept a fraction of the invitations from around the country. I'm scheduled two years in advance. And at that, I'm only selecting a fraction of and you're speaking to big huge overflow, huge audiences. And these are not elite intellectuals either. These are mostly popular audiences. I, I, I probably spend 20 or 30 hours a week just answering letters from people all over the country and the world. I, I wish I felt a little more lonely. I don't. Of course, I'm not on NPR. You know, I wouldn't be in the mainstream media, but I wouldn't expect that. Why should, they, uh, why should they offer space to somebody who's trying to undermine their power and to expose what they do? But that's not lonely. Professor Jobsky, thank you very much. So this was from 1996, and he said, they're going to use the internet to marginalize people even more, right? That's what he said, and lo and behold, and the propaganda got even stronger, bigger, harder, and louder. It's almost as if it was like the fog. Well, it is the fog of war, where it muffles you when you feel like you have pillows on your ears and you can't hear anything that makes sense. It's not clear. You're just confused and you don't know if you're coming and going and people are talking about things and you're like, yeah, and you run down that rabbit hole. Yeah, let me run down that one. Bottom line is all of us need to find that still within us. That doesn't mean stand still, but find that focus to use your gut. That is the important words that he said over 20 years ago to advise us to advise us, dear future self, I'm just saying. So on that note, guys, I will see you uh, on Easter Sunday night. We'll do movie night together. I'll watch it with my kids, with you. Um, I'm not sure which one I'm focusing on. Uh, I will 
uh, try to get some work done, but I have to be realistic. I mean, it's Easter weekend holiday. I also, within the next like 10 minutes, have to get out of pajamas. Well, pajamas that I could drive with, you know, what is it? Comfy clothes, right? Into actual clothes, wrap the Easter presents for my kids and the fiance, and then go get Phoebe from school. So then I can go get that lamb for Sunday. <laughs> so, and then there's church tonight too. So um, I want you guys to know, I wanted to say this before I go. So yesterday during service, I sat there and I was listening to the priest's uh, you know, just read the gospel and walk through that time that Jesus, you know, was being questioned and he didn't answer and it was him, Barabbas, et cetera, et cetera. And then I thought to myself, if Jesus existed today, those very priests would be calling to have him crucified. And, and it was, and I was thinking to myself, oh my gosh, why am I having these thoughts? These are so evil. But in essence, I felt that if Jesus was alive today, the majority of the population would be crucifying him for saying things that go against the narrative. And that's, that sucks. Cause I was listening to them talk and, and, and read the gospel. And I was thinking, but you're the one that promoted and told people that they must wear masks. They must wear vaccines that they can't take communion because they'll get sick when it's a holy sex. Like I don't, Get it. The hypocrisy is real. And so I don't know if it was, you know, just, I just felt really bad that I was having those thoughts as I was in church, but they felt real. I was disappointed. I was like, wow, he must be disappointed that in his own house, 99% of the people in there would have demanded he get crucified because they're, on the mentality that anyone that thinks differently must be silenced, must be terminated, must be eliminated, must be canceled, and every month and everyone must obey. That's how I felt, and I felt really I felt bad. I mean, I, I had to go. Um, I had to leave like thirty minutes before service ended because Phoebe had you know tests and whatnot very early in the morning because they have all the state testing and stuff like that. And it was just, it just, it made me feel bad. I felt bad for thinking that, but you know, I, I'm, I'm processing my thoughts and feelings and I, I, I'm, I would stand by that assessment that, you know, as I stood there in church, I watched everyone and I was like, wow, more than 90% of these people would have had him crucified because this is the way they think. And this is very, very sad. It makes me very, very sad to, to think about it and to understand just how true it is. And that sucks. It really does suck. And I really wish that everyone could, you know, what is that? What is that cliche? Can't we just all get along? Well, you know, you, we can all get along, right? But then no one would be in power. And that's a problem for those that want to be in power. So on that note, guys, I'm going to wish you a wonderful weekend, a fabulous evening. For those of you celebrating Easter, my uh, Eastern Orthodox, historical Christians, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Coptic Orthodox, uh, Romanian Orthodox, Belarusian, whatever, Ukrainian. I don't know. Did they change the church that much? Did they do it another time? I don't know. Anybody celebrating Easter right now, may it uh, be a blessed holiday for you and 
uh, remember what this holiday really stands for, which is, remember he was crucified because they wanted to censor him. Because ideas are very dangerous to people that want to keep control. And we all know this was all about control and they didn't like that. So now we're going to take it to the limit. Those on Twitch will raid shortly after. Future. I thought that I would type this letter. Always gotta take it to the limit. Remember who you are, you created by God. One, and we got saved by a son, born on the mission, but he is not done. Shine so bright, sound so right. Don't worry, everything will be alright. Plenty of the food, everybody eating. Five days of work and party on the weekend. Trust where we go, one, we got us. We gonna be in front, the rest is in the dust. Waiting, they got bad blood from Satan. The arm got mixed in with bacon. MRC5, not for the beehive. And we know the truth about hunters. G5, so we just pray.